0: Welcome to Case by Case. This is a podcast brought to you by Callum Chain and Luke Zatkovich from ZFZ. How are you today, Callum?
1: Very good, Luke. How are you doing?
0: Good. Yeah. Yeah, really good. Um, a few things going on, but uh, always good to jump on the pod uh, and talk about a new case. I think this is a. A case that kind of traverses some issues, procedural issues, that we haven't really touched on before, Carl.
1: Yeah, there's a, uh, we've got a summary judgment application here, which is a new one for us. Um, at least I think it's a new one for us in in the 50, 50-odd we've done, done so far. Um, and some <laughs> interesting issues around a, a couple of sale contracts here.
0: Yeah, well, look, I was looking at it from the perspective of we have a, a first-instance decision here from the Commercial Court in England. Um, and the claimant didn't turn up. <laughs> the, cla- the claimant didn't turn up to its own summary judgment uh, to defend a, a summary judgment application against it brought by uh, the defendant applicant. Look, we'll get into the reasons for that in a minute, but um, you don't see that every day, that's for sure. Although we've certainly had our, I'm sure you have as well, but we've had our fair share of cases where um then you know, let's just say that for whatever reason, on the other side, cases aren't either being pursued the way that they should be pursued or defended the way that they should be defended, um, and then you end up in situations like what happened
1: here. Yeah, hundred percent. And there's uh, this one seems to have kind of fallen. It's not been perfectly handled. And It seems as though when you go into the facts, the um, the, the the claimant whose whose claim is um, is under under application for for a summary judgment um well they, sorry to, to be clear that the defendant is applying to knock out the claim a summary stage and uh the claimant's claim obviously has some some problems that are caused not necessarily by the by the claim itself but rather by issues around time bar and uh, limitation periods and and things that are kind of uh, unenforceable errors if you like.
0: It looks that way. It definitely looks that way. So just uh, a quick citation. Um, we're talking about the Enron, A-N-R-O-N, Enron Bunkering and Glencore Energy case. Uh, this was handed down on the 14th of February, 2023. Uh, citation, 2023 EWHC295.com. Um, this is a decision handed down by Mr. Simon Colton, QC, sitting as a deputy high court judge. Um, And as we said, there was an appearance for the defendant applicants at Glencore um, and there was no uh, appearance by the claimant respondent at this summary judgment um, hearing. And I think perhaps before we get into the the summary judgment application itself, Callum, we probably should touch on the adjournment application that was made by the claimant um, prior to the day of hearing of the summary judgment um, pro se it was made without representation yeah uh, yeah and- so maybe if we just touch on that to begin with before getting into the 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 meat of the case.
1: And uh, I don't know if even before we start, it's worth just talking through the kind of background facts before we, come before we can come to yeah, them sure, after, let's, sure, sure, right. sure. Yeah let's start either yeah. way. So we've got the the defendant's Glencore and the claimant is Anron. Anron and Glencore enter into sale contracts for unleaded gasoline. Glencore is selling uh for delivery to uh, Yemen. Um there are two contracts there's the July contract and the November contract. The July contract is for 60 thousand metric tons of unleaded gasoline yeah. and the November contract is for two separate parcels of between 30 to 35 thousand metric tons the July contract was completed um, dischar- dis- the, the cargo was discharged uh, the price was paid etc of the two parcels for the November contract there was a Uh, part of the first instalment was discharged and the second instalment was not discharged at all. It seemed as though there was some kind of arbitrage that Glencore took advantage of to basically say we're not going to discharge the rest of uh, the first instalment, we're not going to discharge any of the second instalment. And it it was then the case that at some point there was an acceptance of Glencore's repudiation of the November contract. What happened next is there's this kind of balance of account period where advance payments have been made under both contracts of an amount of, of slightly over 50 million. And Glencore produced a statement of account that said, You have basically paid us everything that you owe, save for a few other entries. Um, it, Glen- Glencore's statements, it seemed, basically said, We accept that we have been overpaid by about $2 million on the unleaded gasoline. But there are all these other payments that you haven't made to us that basically reduce that debt to zero. So you're not getting your two million back. And that's the end of it. Um, slightly more than six years later, there's a claim brought on a number of different grounds, which um, it really is for a return of that two million dollars. Uh, in the in the statement of account, is kind of seen as an overpayment for the gasoline.
0: Exactly. So, look, there were substantial payments made, um, obviously, uh, and it, it it looks to me, judging back and from what we know in in the summary here, that Glencore were were very careful to make sure that um, they had they were in funds for what was being discharged, and there came a point where. Um, they may be discharging more than they'd been paid or would be paid. Um, and they just they, they, they pull down the hatches and said we're not going to uh, we're not going to continue uh, discharging and, and sold it on uh, to Vijaya or you know, took the cargo elsewhere. And then as you say, there's this, there's this discrepancy around discrepancy. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but there's this balanced debate around the, the 1.95 million odd. Um, and whether that was washed out through other amounts that um, Enron owed to Glencore, or whether Glencore still owed that to Enron, and so Enron is claiming that amount on a couple of different bases. And but before we get into that aspect of it, I just think it is worth touching on what has happened procedurally. So um, the the claimant was represented by solicitors. The claim was brought by solicitors. Uh, and there then became an issue. We actually know quite a lot about um, the the ins and outs of the claimant and their own solicitors, which is quite unusual. Um, uh, But we know that there was some kind of payment dispute. It looks like the claimant stopped paying their lawyers. Um, Lawyers and the solicitors and or their counsel had concerns over the merits of the case and was raising that with um the claimant itself. Uh and it got to the point where the claimant solicitors in Paris said, we're not going to continue working anymore until you put us in funds and pay us. Quite a reasonable position, I'd say, to take, uh with solicitors, say on
1: this podcast, that so that's a very reasonable position to take.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um quite. So anyway, uh the solicitors on record then pull out. They're they're off record. Um In the meantime, well, during that process, I think when this was still on record, uh, Glencore had hit them with a a request for further information and tried to get a little bit more information around how the claim is being put, got some information in that respect. Um, And then Glencore has brought this summary judgment application um, in lieu of putting on a defense and just went straight to try and strike out the claim. So then the solicitors come off record for the claimant, the claimant's scratching around trying to find other solicitors um, right up close to the summary judgment hearing, and uh, according to the claimant, is struggling to do so. The claimant then writes to the court directly, again, unusual but not unheard of, um, explaining its position, saying we don't have solicitors on anymore, we're struggling to find new solicitors, um, we want to adjourn. The summary judgment application. Uh, and this is made directly to the court. The court deals with it. The court asks for the, um, defendant who are represented to, um, to respond. So Glencore, um, responds, represented by, you know, um, highly esteemed counsel, um, and, and a top solicitor firm. And they explain to the court know, In the usual way, what are the parameters for dealing with an adjournment application? What are the issues to, to be looking at? And explain why, uh, in their view, that adjournment should not be granted. The claimant itself, again, without representation, writes back to the court and dumps the court with all the communications, or at least a, a large amount of the communications between it and its solicitors and its attempts to find new solicitors. And in that process of dumping information, there's a host of inconsistencies and, um, you know, the claimant saying one thing and then saying the next thing and also just blows privilege on the merits advice that uh, the claimant had received from its solicitors, so you've got a bad claim and this and that. So then the the judge has to deal with it.
1: Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And, you know, this isn't just a sort of... A slightly bad waiver of privilege this is awful the 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 there's an email in december 2022 in which an Anne, anron Anne from the claimant is informed that counsel has resigned from the case saying that he does not wish to be further involved in a case he considers not to be of any merit and the solicitor goes on were i to instruct a new barrister at this late stage i see little prospect that the barrister would disagree Um, He then continues, I've asked for monies on account on numerous occasions. I've wasted a ridiculous amount of time endlessly chasing for payment. So these messages really don't help the claimant at all because firstly, he's he's telegraphed to the court and to the defendants that the claim is at the very least highly, highly shaky. Um, And secondly, if you're going to get a uh, adjournment from the court, which courts are pretty loath to give, particularly given the, the, you know, the lead times for, for fixing dates nowadays. Um,
0: seven months, you, I think. The seven months
1: here. Yeah, exactly. So the court is just not going to say, okay, well, we'll just wait seven months. They're going to say, we've, we've got the date now, let's do this thing. Unless there's some reason outside of your control that's really forcing you not to do it now. And looking at this, it's really just the litany of the of the claimant's own errors um, in the documents that the claimant is providing.
0: Yeah, and I don't think the court summed it up that the, the claimant appears to have been wanting to run this case and continue to ne- negotiate a settlement or get something out of it without having to pay for lawyers to do it. Um, and, and yeah, it's classic. The, the, the solicitors haven't been paid; they had to come off record. Um, newsletters, when approached, have said, "Well, I'll look at it. I'll have a look. I'll deal with it. I'll see what I can do." I think one of them said, "No, it's too short outright." But another one said, "Okay, I might might be able to look at this, but you've got to um, put funds on account." And you know, again, the claimant wasn't willing to do that. Yeah. So you're not going to get a lot of sympathy from the court.
1: Sure enough, uh, they do not get that sympathy. They, the court said that the burden lies on Anron to justify the adjournment, and then. Anron did not satisfy the court that Anron is not responsible for its lack of legal representation. On the contrary, it appears to me more than likely, more likely than not, that Anron, having been advised that its claim was bound to fail, has been dragging its heels in the hope that it can achieve a negotiated resolution of these proceedings without the need to incur legal fees. So exactly as you say, Luke, it, the court takes a pretty dim view of all of this.
0: Absolutely. And I, I think it's worth emphasizing here um, in a, in a broader sense that court deadlines are, are held pretty firmly. You've got to have good reason, particularly for a hearing. You've got to have good reason to seek an adjournment of them. And it, it, it's a completely different ball game than um, arbitrations, or, although even in arbitrations these days, if you have a hearing fixed, it's hard to move them uh, as well. There has to be really cogent reasons for it. Um, so then, then the, the court goes on to deal with uh, the summary judgment application has the hearing um, a couple of points I thought to note at the outset of that one the the uh, the court notes quite clearly that it's in the unusual position of having seen all this what would have been privileged legal advice saying that the claim is worth worthless and whatever else and then says I find it irrelevant I'm not going to rely on that or look at it well not probably look at it but not Rely on it or consider it in coming to a view. I'll come to my own view, <laughs> which you know, of course. But at the same time, it it doesn't it doesn't uh, set a set a a good uh, a good tone or or a good kind of you know foundation for the judge to look at the
1: yeah you wouldn't case you wouldn't want to be in a situation where the judge has already seen it even if. In this case, uh, Simon Colton Casey is saying I'm, look, I'm not paying attention to that when, giving, when making this uh, judgment. The, the other thing, I just, just reflecting back on the um, a German application, something I thought that was, that was um, well handled in this judgment, if I, if I can say that, um, was, that was that the former solicitors who were accused of all sorts of negligence and other, th- and other wrongdoings, but seemingly on the facts of the judgment hadn't done anything wrong. They weren't named at all in this judgment. And I thought that there was no reason to name them, but quite often you see these kind of things slipping in. You know, you sent an email to name of this person, um, or you you received an email from this person. And I thought in a situation where there seemed to be some quite heavy accusations of negligence that are pretty unfounded, I thought it was um it, it was it was quite nice to see that the that um the Simon Colton KC, sitting as a deputy decided not to Kind of name anybody involved?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I hadn't noted noted that, but now you say it, so it's a, it's, a, it's a good point. Because I was looking for who it was. A <laughs> <laughs> oh, good one, yeah. Um, I don't think we, they didn't say who any of the solicitors were, did they?
1: Or, no, but you, or know, you, you, you know, you know from the front page, obviously, that it's um Clyde's Ron for Glencairn. Yeah, 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 and then yeah, yeah, Ben, yeah. ben Coffer. um Yeah, his, I saw that. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs>
0: But the I mean the subsequent solicitors that, that were approached or anything like no,
1: that. No, no one on the claimant side.
0: So summary judgment applications, the, there's two kind of legal aspects here to touch on. One is what's the, the threshold or what's, what's a judge looking at or the court looking at? Um, what's the court looking at when dealing with the summary judgment uh, application? I think that's one point just to touch on. And then the second one is the, the substantive legal issues that are being decided here, whether an implied term um, should be implied in, this, in these sale contracts or not, um, as the claimant has, uh,
1: has alleged. And I don't know about you, Luke, but I thought that it was interesting just to kind of go back to fresh principles on when you get off the ground on a summary, summary judgment application. Um, yeah. And the case that was cited was Easy Air Limited against Opal uh, Telecom. And the the kind of passage, there's a reasonably long passage, which is cloistered in the judgment, um, in in this judgment that we're talking about. But the the kind of key bit there for me was, um, Justice Lewis and says in, in in the easier case, if the court is satisfied that it has before it all the evidence necessary for the proper determination of the question, and that the parties have had an adequate opportunity to address it in argument, it should grasp the nettle and decide it. And that that kind of sets the tone for the for the court's view on this thing, which is basically if, if there's a legal threshold question and the court has all the evidence that it needs, then you can go ahead to summary judgment on that question and the, the court should um the, the court should be has as they say here, grasping the nettle.
0: And, and that's what the court did. It went on to grasp the nettle. Um I suppose the the, the alternative is if, if it is this is what the uh, the authority says, if it is possible to show by evidence that although material in the form of documents or oral evidence that would put the documents in another light is not currently before the court and such material is likely to exist and can be expected to be available at trial, it would be wrong to give summary judgment because there would be a real as opposed to a fanciful prospect of success. But it's it's not enough just to kind of speculate and say, well, yeah. oh, look, something may come up during the trial, that's going to change it. Um, if it. If and the way I I think of this is, is it something that's going to turn on evidence or is it something that's going to turn on law? Um, it's not that strict, but um, uh, but but if we're talking about a, a relatively straightforward legal point, that's not going to need the full hammering of all the evidential points argued and the rest of it, and it can be dealt with simply. Then yeah, get on with it. Uh, and that's what that's what this case really um, turned turned out to be.
1: And then there's just another kind of neat aside in this judgment, which is the principles that apply where you have a uncontested hearing. Um, again, just one of these things that comes up every now and again that you see in see in cases, and it's always helpful to have the citation to hand if you if if you're that sort of person. And the, there's a there's a there's a court there's a, there's a case called Herbert and Management against Cummings Power Generation. Um, which, which says that participating party is under an obligation to present the case fairly. This is not the same as a duty of full and frank disclosure on without notice applications, but an obligation to present the facts and arguments fairly. Um, so an interesting point there. If, if you're uncontested, then you have to be fair in your presentation of the case. It's not as much as going into the, into the detail of full and frank disclosure, but you do have to be fair. And I thought, it, certainly from the judgment, that was, that was the case here. Um, Benjamin Koffer was counsel for Glencore and he raises some actually pretty interesting arguments and we can get into those later Luke, on uh, the sort of arguments that the claimant might be bringing in response to this application for summary judgment to say that the summary judgment application should not succeed. Um, so he, he throws out those arguments to kind of say if they were here they might be arguing this, they might be arguing this, even though it, these points were not pleaded. Um, he's he kind of telling the court like this is where they might go
0: yeah and it always goes a long way doesn't it with the court when when you do that and and um it's impressive sometimes to see how counsel does that um and you actually you know have some obligation to do that um to an extent when when the other party's not there different to um, an ex parte without notice application where you actually have a full and frank disclosure obligation, and, and so you, you you know you need to to go to some length to put the other other side's case as well. Um, but what's interesting about this is it's not just done in cases where the other side um, are not there. It's, you also see this technique done when the other side are there. Um, it's almost like getting in first. So in your opening, you, you may say, "Look, it may be set against me, or the other side may 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 put this to you." Um, but here's why they're wrong. And like th- this is the argument they could make, and you know you actually hear it at, at the time being made. Like why are they making the other side's case out? And they said, "And this is why it's wrong." Bang, bang, bang. <laughs> and, and and here, here the there was also an out for the court, as you alluded to there. In that these arguments weren't pleaded. So even if there was something to them, the court had the out to say, well, you know, if, if I were co- to contemplate that argument or to con- uh, continue, I'm not going to in this instance, uh, because they're not pleaded, right? As it turns out, the, the court was actually with, um, the respondent on the arguments, but there's that saver as well.
1: Maybe moving, maybe it's a good time to move on to the arguments themselves because. Yeah. To me, this was a pretty straightforward claim for money hadn't received. And when I first read through it, uh, they were bringing all these different arguments about implied terms. There's an implied term that Glencore need to provide an SOA. There's an implied term the SOA needs to be accurate. I was thinking, why is this not just being brought as a claim for money hadn't received? And then you would check the dates, and you realize that claim for money hadn't received is time barred. So it's all out these other time. claims, uh, exactly. So time. they're just they're just trying to find a way to bring some other argument. To recover their claim for money hadn't received um, and I mean to me I actually thought that one of the arguments raised by um, Mr. Coffer for for the defendant applicant but raised kind of on behalf of the the, the non-attending claimant was a pretty good one which was the and Basically the the argument here was that there was a complete failure of basis, so that money should be returned. And the, the argument that was identified by Mr. Coffer, again, he's 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 presenting for the defendant, but he's raising this he's he's raising this argument as one that the claimant might run against him. And he says that you would in order for, in order for the failure of basis to arise, you would have to have the contract terminated, determined, or discharged first. And there's some support for that position at law in a couple of cases. There's some also support against it, um, but it seemed to me, just kind of thinking through it practically, that, that, that there is at least a, you know a decent argument that for a claim for a failure of basis should be on the basis of a contract which which has fallen away somehow, whether it's term- been been terminated or determined or otherwise discharged. And I say that because. If you have a sale agreement, and the sale, you know, I've I agree. For example, Luke, I agree to to sell you, I don't know, 10, uh, 10 bananas, and that I just I just don't. Um, yeah, sorry, I I agree I agree to sell to, to sell, sell you these bananas. You agree to pay for them, and you pay for them, and I just don't give them to you. The deadline goes past, and I still haven't given given them to you. As far as I'm concerned, I'm still under an obligation to give them to you at some point until the contract is kind of concluded or you say forget it, I'm never getting these bananas from you, Callum. I, I still have that obligation to give them to you at some point. Um, and it's at the point where we say, okay, actually this contract now falls away because you've completely failed to give me these bananas. I paid for them. Contract's over, give me money give me my my money back. That to me is the kind of ordinary situation. So the difficulty for Glencore here was to identify that there was a point in time for the contracts were terminated where Glencore's failure of basis had happened. And again, the reason that Glencore here are arguing that that they'd completely failed to perform under this contract at some earlier date is because the earlier Glencore can push that date, the higher the chances that it's time barred. So there's kind of an all-round agreement that Glencore didn't perform the contract. Glencore are trying to say, we had not performed the contract at a very early stage. And Anron are trying to say, actually, you had not performed the contract at a much later stage, and that was the point at which our right to recover the money from you crystallized. Um, so I thought it was interesting to see that point kind of kicked about.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it, well, the, the the judge said here that in his view, um, it's not a requirement that the contract in question uh, needs to be terminated in a sale of goods case before a claim for adjustment unjust enrichment can be brought um, and he set out that the the test is whether the state of affairs contemplated as the basis or reason for that payment had failed to materialize yeah. so it's this it's this it's a broader concept than termination now in many cases that will be a termination right that that, that is an ending that's a clear uh, a clear cutoff point, if you like, uh, where the basis fails. But um, there can be other situations where uh, where that arises without a termination. And there are a couple of ex- examples that were given. One is where there are defective goods that are delivered, and the buyer cannot recover an advance payment or an instalment unless and until it has decided to reject the goods. And and then there's a second example given as well, in the case of late delivery. Um, if delivery remains a possibility under the contract, then it may not be possible to conclude that there is a failure of basis unless and until delivery ceases to be a possibility. Um, and that may in reality only be when the contract is brought to an end. But in other circumstances, it may be concluded that the basis has failed to materialize this this failure to materialize kind of concept, even without the party terminating the contract. Yeah. So it's, and I and I I tend to think that makes sense. I, I don't see the need for such a black and white rule on termination being a formal termination. I think there could, there can almost be a, a and this is not the phrase used in the judgment, but a, a termination of facts. Like there's a, 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 a something factual arising that puts a punctuation of full stop in the chain of events that then you can say, okay, there's the failure.
1: So here, for example, it's, it seems as though there is this point in time where the goods that would have been given to Anron, the claimant, were delivered somewhere else to a third party. And that was before six years before the claim was filed. So, the, so in that situation, the, um, it, the judgment here is really saying, from that point on, there was no possibility of this being performed. So there was the failure of basis. And I, and I totally see that. And I think it, it maybe in some cases it depends on uh, how specific the contract is. You know, it, it, how specific is the cargo that you're, that you're purchasing? Has that specific cargo actually completely gone? Um, and I suspect it's probably a situation, as you say, because it doesn't have to be completely black and white. The majority of cases probably will require that termination or probably will maybe not require the termination, but probably the the point at which you can see this crystallized failure of basis will be at the same point in time as the contract is terminated or extinguished or, or determined. Um, but in some cases, such as this one, there is that there is that possibility that the, the contract just simply cannot be performed anymore. And once that date is passed, then you, you kind of crystallize your point in time at which your claim, your claim starts.
0: Yeah, exactly. Look, then the, the court went on to hold that look, even if um, it's wrong on that point, that this failure to plead um, would have been enough for the the defendant to um, succeed anyway. So there is this catch-all. Um, I'm sure that's put in there. Well, I'm sure it's put in there for, for good reason, but also it it, it um, hinders an appeal, um, yeah. makes it difficult to to attack this on, on an appeal, and I don't know. May, maybe there is. I, I, I'm not. I'm not convinced that point is super black and white, um, you know, in, in different circumstances and maybe if this was went to trial and we had full facts and all the rest of it. Maybe there is a there is a legal point to discuss there and to argue on this termination issue. Um, but in any event, in this case, I, I don't think it's going anywhere. Um, and there's the catch-all on failure to plead. Then there's this other alternative argument. This is the, the second kind of point that um, counsel for... Mm. Glencore submitted that the statements of account that Glencore sent to Anron could be considered as an acknowledgement of a debt owed. Um, and that that acknowledgement would be, uh, sufficient to found the action and get around the limitation issues. Uh, the judge, the judge, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Colton QC sitting as a deputy judge, um, uh he he found that uh, that it wasn't basically an acknowledgement of a debt owed um there was a, it, it was a document that showed credits and debits and claims and you know uh, basically set up a debate um rather than something that uh, is a clear acknowledgement of a debt and so kind of dismiss that option that that argument um that had been put up in a in a putative way by uh, by the defendant
1: yeah and this is this is a kind of um statutory claim almost in the in section 29 subsection 5 of the limitation act 1980 says that it's effectively that you refresh that time period if someone acknowledges the debt and it, they were saying basically the the soa refreshed the time period um to which the court said no because the soa didn't acknowledge that there was a net balance owing it said it, it it was clear from the SOA that there had been this overpayment of one point nine five million, but there wasn't an acknowledgement of any debt owed there because because it was offset yeah. on traffic statement by other ancillary issues, that are ancillary costs <laughs> and payments that the Blendcore claimed had to be returned from Anroth.
0: Exactly. So the claims were uh, time barred, uh,
1: time barred and failed. And summary application failed. was uh, summary summary judgment was granted in favour of the defendant.
0: The claim had got itself in a complete mess on this one. Um so yeah, interesting. Um always a few different points to come to to arise on these kinds of cases. Callum. Thank you everyone for listening in. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Please do like, subscribe, share, all that good stuff. Um and listen in again next week. Um we'll hopefully have another podcast for you on, on Thursdays as per usual. Good to chat,
1: Callum. Cheers thing. Cheers, everybody, for listening in.